0: Right, good morning. Merry Christmas. Feliz Navidad. Maligayang Pasco. Salamat Natal. Merry Christmas. Would you please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12? Revelation chapter 12. And while you turn there, I have a question for you. This is a little bit of a challenge and this one is especially for the kids who are with us today. Here's a question. Can you summarize the story of the Bible, the whole Bible, story of the whole Bible in one sentence, 10 words or less? Right, that's your challenge, 10 words or less. So why don't you turn to the person next to you and try to summarize that in 10 words or less, right? Go ahead, little challenge. Story of the whole Bible. Okay, time is up. Time's up, and if you would join me in prayer before we turn to God's Word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, grant this morning that we would behold your great and glorious Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, given for us, and that our hearts may be encouraged in His victory. It's in Jesus' name, amen. So I hope that went well. A few weeks ago, I asked you, as we looked at Genesis chapter three, what images come to your mind when we speak of Christmas? And you know, for some people, it's a Christmas tree. Uh, For some people, it's gifts or being around a fireplace all warm and together. Uh, For others like me, I think of the food, the great potluck we had last week. I think I've gained a whole kilo. Uh, But I said one image that you don't normally associate with Christmas is a snake. And we saw that in Genesis chapter 3, God's first promise of Christmas were his words to a snake. Well, this morning, we're coming to the end of the Bible we looked at the promise of Christmas throughout the Bible, starting in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Today we're coming to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and there's a another image that you don't normally associate with Christmas. Are you ready? This one is a dragon. A dragon. You weren't really thinking of Christmas when you think of that. And here's why I'm going to give you The sentence, right? This is a six-word sentence that summarizes the entire Bible. Uh, Some time ago, one of our Bible scholars wrote to a number of other Bible teachers and pastors around the world and said, please try and summarize the story of the Bible in one sentence. And a couple of guys came up with this little sentence, just six words, all right? Are you ready? I want the kids to catch this one, okay? What's the story of the Bible? Kill the dragon... Save the girl. Are you ready, kids? You want to repeat that with me? What's the story of the Bible? Kill the dragon, save the girl. Amen. And you hear that and you say, Oh well, that sounds like a lot of other stories I know, doesn't it? It sounds like some ancient mythologies that we've heard. It sounds like all of the fairy tales that we read. That sounds like the plot of a Disney movie, kill the dragon, save the girl. What's that? What does that have to do with the Bible? Right? Or is this some kind of parallel? And the answer is, well, the Bible is the true and ultimate version of that story. The reason that that theme is so common and it captivates our hearts is because it's the story of history. And all of these other fairy tales and all of these other Disney movies are really a reflection, a pale reflection of this true and ultimate story. You know the story. An evil dragon, a monster, takes over a realm, keeps the people under oppression and under his tyrannical rule, locks up the princess in a tower. But then a great prince, a warrior hero is born and he rises up and he is attacked by this dragon. The dragon wants to destroy him because the dragon knows that this one will vanquish him but the dragon fails. The hero slays the dragon liberates the princess, takes her as his bride, and brings peace to the kingdom. In other words, kill the dragon, save the girl. And that's the story of the Bible. What is the Bible? It's the story of a garden, a beautiful garden, that a serpent comes and turns into a howling wilderness, and he rules over it in terror, until an appointed warrior, a prince is born. And this prince slays the serpent in the process, giving up his own life, but freeing his people, his princess, his bride, saving them, and then rising again victorious and turning that wilderness back, not just into a garden paradise, but into a garden city and a glorious kingdom. Kill the dragon, save the girl. That's a true story. And friends, that's the story of Christmas that we saw in Genesis, that we see through the whole Bible, and that we'll see this morning in Revelation chapter 12. The victory of our Lord Jesus Christ, our prince, over the dragon by which he saves us, his bride, his church. And that's great encouragement for us and hope. To rejoice and to remain faithful because he will protect and preserve us till the end. So we're going to look at four pictures in Revelation chapter 12 As we look at this great story this morning, four pictures in Revelation 12. And the first one is this, our persecutor. First we see our persecutor. Verse one. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon, with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads, head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, as you're reading this book, which can be quite challenging at times, here we are coming to the midpoint of the book. Uh, Some people have called Revelation chapter 12 the center and key to the entire book. In fact, if you come to the end of chapter 11, the seventh trumpet is blown and it's the end of history. God's kingdom comes. Everything is finished. The story is finished. And then all of a sudden it picks up again in chapter 12. So what's going on here? Well, what's going on is kind of what was happening in The World Cup game that I watched last week. I hope you watched that. It was probably one of the most thrilling finals in World Cup history. And, you know, I loved, my favorite moment was Messi's goal in, in extra time. And when he scored, you know, all of a sudden, it was just like everything came alive. Excitement. All jumping around the room. And then you see the goal again. And then you see the goal again. And you see the goal again and again from different perspectives. What's happening? Action replay. Right? Action replay as you view the same event from multiple perspectives. Well, that's how you read the book of Revelation, and that's how you read prophecy in general. The, the prophets, and here the Apostle John gives us different perspectives on the same events over and over again. You'll in fact even see that in this chapter. You'll see chapter uh, verses one to six of the chapter are parallel to verses 7 to 12 and verses 13 to 17. It's the same thing being repeated again and again. You're getting an action replay from different points of view. And chapter 12 now is giving us an action replay on everything that we've seen gone before, showing us a different perspective on the story. So where does it begin? It begins with John looking, and he says, a great sign appeared in heaven, and he sees this woman. Pay attention to how he describes her: a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. So this has caused some people to take this as Mary. I'm not convinced with the majority of people who uh, interpret Revelation, I agree, this is not Mary. This is actually, this woman stands for the people of God in both the Old Testament and the New, those who are faithful to God and his promises. The people of Israel in the old covenant, the church in the new covenant, right? From whom did Jesus come forth? He was born from the nation of Israel. And the woman then continues as the church. Notice she is crowned, she's clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and 12 stars. You might remember that in the book of Genesis in Joseph's dreams as representing the nation of Israel that was to come. Uh, Throughout the Bible, woman is used as a metaphor for God's people. In the New Testament, we see that the woman is the church, the bride of Christ. Uh, Even depicted as a mother, uh, Galatians chapter 4 verse 26, the Jerusalem above, she is our mother. At the end of the book of Revelation, the church is the bride that the lamb takes to himself. And even in the Old Testament, God's people are depicted as a mother suffering birth pains. Isaiah 26, 17, they're suffering birth pains. The sufferings of the people of God are like birth pains as they await the coming promised Son and Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. We can confirm that even in this chapter, verse 17, where it says that the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, which are those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. That's us. That's believers in Christ. We are her offspring. So as one great theologian once said, we have God as our father and he gives us the church as our mother. The woman is the people of God. What does John see next? Verse three. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads seven diadems. He sees this evil monster this great red dragon. And this, dear friends, is our great enemy. John is taking us here behind the scenes of everything that happens in life and history. If you see, the book of Revelation was written to seven churches. If you go back and read chapters 1 to 3, you'll see Jesus speaking to these seven churches. And these seven churches in the first century were facing constant persecution. In several of these churches, members of the church had been persecuted and had lost their lives even to death. Uh, They were facing pressure from outside, from the empire, to compromise their belief in Christ. They were also afflicted with problems on the inside. Some of them had grown cold in their love, lukewarm, There was false teaching and false teachers and deception drawing people's hearts away from the truth of the gospel and the word of God. And sometimes, you know, with our secular mindsets, we can look at some of the trials and difficulties and pressures that we face in this life, persecutions that we face, and we can just reduce that to just an earthly thing. We can begin to view things as like, oh, that's just life in this world, But John wants to tell these churches and to tell us that behind all of the worldly trials and afflictions that we face stands an evil, supernatural enemy, that we are in a war. Behind the trials and persecution that we face as Christians, behind all the temptations to give up and compromise, stands this dragon. And he describes him in this passage with six different labels. He's called the dragon over and over and over again. But he's also called, verse 9, did you notice this? He is called that ancient serpent. So, this is the same guy from Genesis chapter 3, from the garden. He's called the devil in the same verse, and Satan. He's called the deceiver of the whole world, and then in verse 10, the accuser of our brothers. What does this dragon do? He destroys and devours. Did you notice his color? He is red. What does red symbolize in the book of Revelation? If you read chapter 6 and verse 4, you'll see that there was a rider sent out on a red horse and he takes peace from the earth so that people slay one another. He's given a great sword. If you go to chapter 17, you'll see a woman dressed in scarlet in red, sitting on a scarlet red beast and it says she is drunk with the blood of the saints. She's a murderer. That's what this dragon is. He's a murderer. He's bloodthirsty. He has seven crowns, seven diadems. He's a pretender to the throne. He is great in his power. He has ten horns which show us his power. And he uses his power to attack. Verse 4, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. I understand that. To mean the dragon's attack on the people of God by which he casts them down and tramples upon them and afflicts us. And then we're given this really terrifying image, grotesque, revolting. In verse 4, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So you ought to picture this woman in in the pains of childbirth pushing for the child to come out and the dragon has positioned himself between her legs and he's bloodthirsty, ready to snatch the child as it is born and tear it apart and devour it, eat it. We've seen this take place in the life of Christ. Matthew chapter 2 that we just heard read, that as Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Herod, the pretender king, was out to get him. And he commanded the slaughtering of all boys born in Bethlehem of the age 2 and under. Bloodshed. And he failed. And what this is telling us is behind that incident stands this dragon Not only behind that, but throughout Jesus' life, Satan attacks and tempts him in the wilderness. Satan brings opponents against him. His opponents are constantly trying to kill him. And finally, Jesus died on the cross. And Satan thought he had won. It looked like Satan had won. Not only does he attack this child, he attacks all who belong to Christ Look at verse 15, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood, seeking to destroy, seeking to devour. Verse 17, the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. Friends, in this world, we face affliction. All around the world, all through history, Believers have faced persecution for their faith in Christ. Behind all that persecution is this great adversary. Behind every evil regime that rules and terrorizes people stands this great dragon. One estimate concerning the persecuted church says for the last 10 years, every year, 160,000 Christian believers have been put to death for their faith in Christ. Behind all those deaths stands this dragon. Many years ago, I used to go with some of the members of my church to the abortion center in the city where we lived, and we used to go there Saturday mornings, pray silently on the sidewalks, and as women went in, we would try to share the gospel with them gently, plead with them not to do this. I saw a video yesterday of a woman praying outside an abortion center in the UK. And she was standing there silent and the police comes up to her and asks her what she's doing. And she said, they ask her, are you praying? She says, yes, I'm praying silently in my mind. And they arrest her. You know, back in Kentucky, there were a number of people who volunteered and came there opposing this, opposing us for sharing the gospel, even being physically violent and abusive. Behind all of that is this dragon. Not only does he seek to destroy and devour, he also deceives. Did you see verse 9? He is called the deceiver of the whole world. Friends, behind every false religion that denies the name of Christ and the living God is this dragon. He is the deceiver behind all false teaching in churches throughout the world that confuses people. And leads them away from the word of God. He is the deceiver who deceives us. Who deceives you and me. Into thinking that our sin is no big deal. Into thinking that we will not face consequences for sin. Into blurring the differences between right and wrong. Into hiding our sin and living in hidden sin. And thinking no one will know and God doesn't see. He even deceives us into taking good things. And seeking those good things apart from God. And after giving you the bait while hiding the hook and trapping you, what does he do next? He accuses you. He destroys and devours. He deceives. He accuses. That's what he's called there in verse 9. He is the deceiver. Verse 10, he is the accuser of our brothers who accuses them day and night before God. Of course, we know the scene from the Old Testament where Satan appears in the heavenly court and wants to accuse Job before God. That's our enemy, as Martin Luther famously sang. Still our ancient foe seeks to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. He's our persecutor, the dragon who seeks to deceive, devour, destroy. A dragon with seven heads and ten horns. So you look at this conflict. You have the dragon, seven heads, ten horns, great red dragon. And on the other side, you have a woman, a pregnant woman about to give birth. Who do you bet on to win this war? Who are you betting on in that conflict? Well, there's one more thing about the dragon that we must not miss here not only does he devour and destroy and deceive and accuse, but also he is defeated. He is a defeated foe. How is this great dragon, this great enemy, this foe defeated? Well, Christmas happened. And that's what moves us to image two in chapter 12. The first image was of our persecutor. The second image is of our prince, the one who vanquishes Satan, who conquers the dragon, our prince. Right, look again at verses four and five. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. This male child is the promised one. And in him, all of the promises of the Bible of the Old Testament are fulfilled. He is the promised offspring of the woman who has come to crush the serpent's head. He is the promised son of Abraham, the one who will bring blessing to all nations. He is the promised king from David's line who will rule and reign and establish his kingdom over all the world. This is our king, this is our prince born in a manger, the son of God from all eternity, taken on human flesh and entered the fight. As Spurgeon famously said, those little hands in the manger will one day grasp the scepter of the universal empire. Those little arms will one day grapple with the monster death and destroy it. Those little feet shall tread on the serpent's neck and crush that old deceiver's head. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? Were not the right man on our side? The man of God's own choosing. Do you ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. You know, so often we think about Christmas and we sentimentalize it, right? We sentimentalize Christmas and it becomes all about, you know, the cute little baby in the manger, With the animals moving gently and all is quiet and and calm. And then we think about, you know, plum cake and pudding. And that's okay to have the warm, fuzzy feelings. But let me assure you, dear friends, it was not a silent night when Jesus was born. No, it was a night marked by screams The screams of childbirth, of labor pains, the pain brought into the world by the curse. It was marked by the screams and cries of the people of God awaiting their promised king. The screams and cries of mothers bereaved of their children, even as the dragon sought to devour. The screams and cries of a newborn. God, the son almighty, the eternal son of God, taking on our humble flesh. And coming into this cold, dark world, it was a night marked by the screams and shrieks, the roaring of the dragon and the powers of darkness, because they knew their time was up. It was not a silent night. Dear friends, Christmas was an act of war. And what happened in that war? Well, he was victorious, he won. The battle is done. He is victorious. That's what we see in verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And then in a few words, the verse takes her straight from Christmas to Easter and beyond. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. In his sovereign wisdom, God uses what seems weak and helpless, a baby born in a manger, to defeat the mighty dragon. And in those few words, we go straight from the child being born at Christmas to him defeating death in his resurrection and ascending into heaven, establishing his kingdom, all authority in heaven and on earth given to him, ruling, victorious. The dragon is defeated by this prince. And John then gives us an action replay in verses 7 to 12, showing us this defeat from a different perspective, from the heavenly perspective, right? So look at verses 7 to 12. Now, war arose in heaven. I want you to pay attention. Pay attention to how many times this section emphasizes the dragon's defeat, the fact that he's been thrown down. Listen to this. The war war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was By the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto that. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. Did you see that? Over and over, he was defeated. He was thrown down. Verse 9, he was thrown down to the earth. His angels were thrown down with him. Verse 10, the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Look at the victory that is emphasized in verse 10, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Christ was victorious. And, and you see this heavenly war. Uh, Michael, who is the heavenly representative of the people of God, an angel, and his angels, the good guys, warring with the devil and his angels, the bad guys, And all of a sudden, the devil is defeated and thrown down. It's not by Michael and his angels. It's by the prince and what he's done. That's what it tells us there. It tells us there that the accuser has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And verse 11, it tells us how he has been conquered and thrown down. They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. How was this dragon conquered? By the blood of Christ. You see, the dragon's power, his great power, and and his great strategy is in his power to accuse. He accuses. God's people. And and here's the fact of the matter. More often than not, his accusations are valid. (laughs) More than valid. Because all of us have sinned, you see. And all of us have fallen short of the glory of God, every single one of us. We come into this world as sinners, as sinful. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden, we rebel against God. We are deceived by Satan's lies. And he stands ready to accuse Even greater problem that we have more than his accusations is the fact that we are guilty in the sight of a holy God and we justly deserve condemnation and judgment. But our holy God has been gracious and loving to us and he has sent his own son our Lord Jesus Christ sent him fully God fully man lived the perfect life giving Satan no basis to accuse him. And then he took on the fight. He went to the cross. He handed himself over to the powers of darkness, willingly gave himself, took upon himself all our accusations, took upon himself the penalty and punishment for sin that we deserve, and died poured out his blood as our substitute, as our representative, dying the death that sinners deserve so that we might not die, but be redeemed. And as a result of his death, his perfect substitutionary sacrificial death, because he poured out his blood, the accuser has no basis to accuse all who trust in Jesus. His accusations are done and dealt with. And therefore, he has been cast down, thrown down with no more standing to accuse. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, dear friend, if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ and you are still in your sins, we want you to know that there is a war going on in this world, even though you might not see it between this dragon, this defeated enemy, the powers of darkness, and God Almighty and his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you don't know Christ, then you're on the wrong side. You're still living under the dragon's rule and reign. And I want you to know he will be one day finally defeated. But today, if you're here, you showed up on Christmas Day somehow, you have the opportunity to change sides and join the winning team. You have the opportunity to be freed from your sins, freed from the dragon's power in your life. You can be free, Revelation chapter one tells us that Jesus has loved us and set us free by his blood. So all you need to do, dear friend, is repent from your sin, turn away from your sin, and flee to this savior, to this prince, to this conquering hero and put your trust in him and in his blood, and you will be forgiven of sins, and you will have victory over the dragon and everything that binds you, and the promise of eternal life. Would you trust him today? The dragon has been defeated. You know, in 1991, some of you might even remember this, living here, the Gulf War was happening And the American troops came to the aid of Kuwait and came in. And that was the end of the war, February 1991. Decisively, as the Americans took over Kuwait, they liberated Kuwait from the Iraqi army. But Saddam Hussein was defeated. But him and his army had this strategy on the way out. They burned, set fire to 700 oil fields in Kuwait. It was a violent attack even knowing that they were losing the war. I I heard this story about uh, this chef who was preparing this rare delicacy of cobra soup. Don't try this at home. And he cut off the cobra's head and he was going to toss it into the garbage and the severed head of the cobra bit him and he was poisoned. Scientists say that a snake's head keeps on lashing out and biting for hours after it's been chopped off. That's that's what's happening here, you see. The dragon has been defeated. But now come the most violent of his attacks. He knows he's lost the war, but he doesn't want to give up the fight. You see that in verse 12? Woe to you, O earth and sea, the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Verse 17, the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Even as he knows that the decisive death blow has been given, he is crazy and furious and wants to violently attack the church, the people of God. But we can say, as Luther said, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. Friends, Satan may unleash all manner of fury, persecution, affliction, pressure, deception against the saints of God. But these are the last gasps of a dying snake. And not only that, God preserves and protects his people, no matter Satan's attacks. That's our third image here in Revelation 12. We've seen our persecutor and our prince. Next we see our protection, our protection. You see verses five and six, the woman gives birth to a male child. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne, verse six, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Hold on to that uh, image there. She's in the wilderness for 1,260 days. We see again the action replay in verses 13 to 16. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent, into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. The woman is the people of God. And this furious defeated dragon is attacking her. He tries multiple different lines of attack, but God protects the woman. She's taken into this place, the wilderness, which is a place of protection, but it's also a place of trial and testing. Friends, that's where we are now, in the wilderness, protected by God. Nothing can ultimately destroy his church, but tested attacked furiously by the devil. And and notice the time period, 1,260 days, time, time, times, and half a time, what's that? Time is one year, times is two years, and half a time is half a year, so three and a half years. All right? That's the same number, 1,260 days is three and a half years. And that was a commonly used number and symbol in Jewish history at the time to talk about a period of great struggle, war, and and tribulation, trial. You see, a war had taken place about 200 years before the death of Christ in which the Jews had waged war against the ruling Greeks and overthrown them. And that war lasted for three and a half years and came at great cost and suffering. So it's symbolic for a period of trial and struggle. And I think the best way to understand it is to look at it as the time between the first coming of Christ and his second coming. That's consistent throughout Revelation. The time between the first coming of Christ and his second coming, which is right now, where you, are, you and I are at, on this side of Christmas, waiting for his return. And the place is the wilderness, which means suffering and evil do afflict us. Suffering does come our way. Even the evil of persecution, even death for the sake of Christ but what it does mean is that evil is not ultimately victorious. Evil does not have the final say. Evil will not triumph. Nothing will ultimately be able to stop God's plans. He sovereignly protects and preserves his people. Jesus has said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And for 2,000 years, we have seen that to be true as persecutions, wars, evil empires, dictators, nothing has been able to stop the advance of the gospel and of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we are on the winning side. God Almighty is sovereign even over the enemy's attacks. These are permitted for a limited time. But God will protect and preserve us to the end. What a great source of confidence and encouragement that is for us this Christmas morning. And that leads us to our fourth and final image in the text. We've seen our persecutor, our glorious prince, We've seen our protection by a sovereign God who rules over all and fulfills his plans perfectly, even through the devil's attacks. And finally, number four, we see our perseverance. Our perseverance. Did you notice the key verse in the chapter, verse 11? They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, because Jesus died, and by the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives even unto death. Again, you skip down to the bottom of the chapter. It says, the dragon went off to make war on the rest of our offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So we overcome the dragon by holding our testimony, holding firmly to what we have believed to the testimony about Christ, bearing witness to the gospel and enduring to the end, loving our lives not even unto death because we know that death is not the end but a pathway into glory. Maybe you've heard of World War II and the two key dates in World War II. One was June 6th, 1944. June 6, 1944 is known as D-Day, right? D-Day, when the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy, took it over, and from there the troops were able to go into German-occupied France and territory and liberate the people. And on that day, D-Day, 1944, June, the war was won, decisively. Many historians will acknowledge that was the end of World War II. But you see, Hitler refused to surrender. And so the fighting continued, even fierce fighting, for another year almost, all the way till May 8th, 1945, when finally World War II was declared over. And that's called V-Day, V-E-Day, Victory in Europe Day. You and I live in this period between D-Day and V-E-Day. The battle has been won. The snake's been wounded mortally and he will be destroyed. But the struggle is fierce. And we will be afflicted. And we will face sorrow. And we will face temptation. And we will face suffering. But dear brothers and sisters, suffering is not a sign of evil's victory. No, the fact that we suffer is a sign of our victory in Christ. They overcame him They conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Even the suffering of death in in this life is a sign of our victory. It becomes a pathway to our victory with the Lamb. Because you see, when we suffer, and when we trust Him, and are found faithful in our suffering, we are shown to be one with the Savior, the conqueror, who also suffered. When we die, we participate in the very thing by which Jesus defeated the devil. And it's not long, you see. We're in that final slice of history. It's like when you're watching the World Cup game, right? Again, That's such a good game, I can't stop talking about it. The, 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 the stoppage time, injury time, some people call. It's, you know, you finish the entire 90 minutes and they add two or three or four minutes, sometimes six minutes to the clock. You never know how much. You never know when it's going to finish. And, and now in this final stoppage time, right, the opposing team is doing all it can, right? is straining, struggling, running around, trying to score a goal. But here's, here's the difference. The score, scoreboard reads 100 and zero, all right? The battle has been won, the game is over, and we just need to hold on till the final whistle blows. Here's three ways that we do that as we close. First, we rejoice in our victory. We rejoice in our victory. The victor is sure and the victory secure. That's why we can sing joy to the world. Did you see verse 12? Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. We rejoice in the victory and the reign of King Jesus. And we look forward to his second coming. As we sing joy to the world, it's not about the first coming of Christ. Joy to the world is a song that we sing at Christmas time, thinking about the second coming of Christ, when he will make the nations prove the glories of his righteousness, And make all things new far as the curse is found. So we can have great joy even in the midst of the greatest trials and temptations and suffering in our lives. We rejoice in our victory. Second, we retell the great story. We retell the great story. How does the kingdom of Christ advance? How do we conquer Satan? Remember it says there in verse 11... They conquered him by the word of their testimony. Now, this doesn't mean that you're going around and just telling people your testimony all the time. All right? It's not referring to your personal testimony of how you came to faith in Christ or of how God did something in your life. When it's talking about word of their testimony, you should understand what it says in verse 17. They hold to the testimony of Jesus. It's, it's, it's a testimony about him. It's our proclamation, our word of who he is and what he's done, of the gospel message, you see? And if it's gonna be a word of our testimony to conquer the devil, that means we need to keep retelling it, retelling what Christ has done, telling this amazing story that our great prince has come, that he has dealt the death blow to the dragon, and by his own death, he has rescued sinners, purified us, and made us his own bride. We share that story with great joy. Kill the dragon. Save the girl. Go tell the story. Make that your New Year's resolution for 2023. Make a New Year's resolution. You want a New Year's resolution? Make a resolution that you will share the gospel with at least one person. One non-Christian next year. You want to be more ambitious? Make a resolution to share the gospel with at least one non-Christian every month. All right? For the next year. We rejoice in our victory. We retell the great story. And finally, we remain firm in our testimony. We remain firm in our testimony. Did you see? They loved not their lives even unto death. They hold to the testimony of Jesus. Many years ago, the great Welsh preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is one of the greatest preachers in history and one of my favorites, was preaching at a gospel meeting. And uh, there was a young aspiring pastor who wanted to meet him after the service. So Lloyd-Jones, as was his custom after preaching, went out and was greeting everybody by the door. And this young man went there with a friend of his and he said, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, what advice and wisdom would you give to a young man like me who's pursuing the ministry? And Lloyd-Jones looked at him and said, keep on. just two words from martin lloyd jones keep on dear friend i don't know what you're going through this christmas maybe you're tempted to give up your faith maybe you're tempted to compromise your convictions maybe you feel like your whole life is falling apart Maybe you're going through great trials or even persecution because of your love for Christ. Maybe you're grieving the loss of someone you deeply love as I have last Christmas and this Christmas. Hold on. Keep on. Just a little longer. We're on the winning side. Jesus reigns. And we will reign with him in the end. Keep on. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the victory of your great son and our Savior. And we pray, Lord God, that we might be found faithful to him. Faithful. By your grace, O Lord, keep us faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.